If there's one thing I have learned in my 30 plus years of pastoral ministry, it's this. If I don't take the time to nurture a grateful and thankful heart that I put myself on a pathway to cynicism and resentment. And resentment is nothing more, as I have come to find out, than anger that has frozen up inside of us and taken up space so nothing warm and compassionate can exist. I remember years ago reading these words penned by the late Henry Nowen, and it made a mark on my soul, and here's what he wrote, quote, Anger in particular seems close to a professional vice in the contemporary ministry. Pastors are angry at their leaders for not leading and at their followers for not following. They're angry at those who don't come to church and angry at those who do come for coming without enthusiasm. They're angry at their families who make them feel guilty and angry at themselves for not being who they want to be. And this is not an open, blatant, roaring anger. It's an anger hidden behind a smooth word, the smiling face, and the polite handshake. It's a frozen anger. It's an anger which settles into a biting resentment and slowly paralyzes a generous heart. I'm sure some of us have probably experienced that kind of anger and resentment before. Now, I don't share this as a confession. I don't share this because I'm angry. I share this because it reminds me of who I don't want to become. I've been to pastoral gatherings and groups where I've left saying to myself, I can't go back there. I can't because it will eventually make my soul toxic, often because of the level of anger and resentment present in the conversation. And I don't want to become that. So rather, I want to have this heart of the Apostle Paul when he writes, quote, I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers. I'm thankful for all of you every time I pray. And it's always a prayer full of joy. I'm glad because of the way you have been my partners in the ministry of the gospel from the time you first believed it until now. And when I read those words, it's, it's as if I crawl into them and I wear them and I find myself often in my soul saying the same thing about Deep River Friends Meeting. I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers. I'm thankful for all of you every time I pray. And it's always a prayer full of joy. You are, underline are, my partners in the ministry of the gospel. That's why I mean it when I say, if you beat me to the hospital, thanks be to God. If you, you go ahead of me, great. If we partner together, fantastic. As we sat here this morning, as we entered into worship, I found myself just sitting here imagining, if you will, God's light just sort of coming and settling on all of you because we are partners in this together. What I find most challenging and encouraging, though, is Paul's writing from prison because he's, he's writing from behind prison bars and most likely the imperial prison at Rome having appealed his case to Caesar. And it's while he waits in prison for hearing of his case that he writes this letter. And Paul doesn't know what the outcome is. He doesn't know what the future holds. What he does know is this, that God poured out his love into his life. And God called him to share this good news with the world. And it's from this experience of God's love and presence that Paul is able to say, as we say, choose joy and give thanks for people in his life that have partnered with him in the work of the ministry and the sharing of the good news. Now, Paul could have chosen resentment for being in prison, but he rather he chose gratitude. And he offered gratitude for those in his life that remained alongside him. When, <clears throat> excuse me, Benita mentioned about 
angels, and I don't know what they look like. And I thought to myself, but I think I do. They look like all the people that have come alongside me in my greatest time of need. All the people that have lifted me up in prayer. All the people that have encouraged me. All the people that have whispered in my ear words of encouragement and words of thanks. All the people have said, I'll carry this load for you. They're often unseen, but I think in many ways we've seen them and we've been them as well. It's not only Paul's thankfulness and gratefulness that speaks to me, but it's his certainty. This speaks to my condition, not a theological certainty, not a creedal one, but it is this certainty in the ongoing work of God in the lives of those he loves. And he puts it this way, and I read it earlier, quote, I'm sure about this. The one who started a good work in you will stay with you to complete the job by the day of Christ Jesus. And I love these words. And they resonate deeply within my soul because if there's anything I would ever want to leave with folks, it's this truth. God started a good work in you when you were created. And God will stay with you to continue this good work. And God is present with you each day in this good work. Now, I believe this to be a word of grace for many folks simply because of this. I often meet many folks who feel there's nothing good that can come from their lives, or nothing good God could ever do in their lives. And this is not as much God's perspective as it is the perspective we carry, maybe due to our own self-rejection or our own self-perception, the perception that we have nothing, nothing good to offer. Somewhere along the way, We've bought into this message that we're no good, or we've experienced crushing failures that we feel that God could never overlook, or maybe someone significant in our life has communicated to us their disappointment, either directly or indirectly. So we carry that into our understanding of God. And so consequently, we have convinced ourselves that we have nothing good to offer, and there is nothing good within us that God would want to use. But yet, Paul tells this again, The one who started a good work in you will stay with you, stay with you to complete the job. Or as the translation, the message puts it, there's never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day Christ Jesus appears. Now, this is the thing to remember. We're all a work in progress, every one of us. None of us is a finished Work. None of us has arrived. God started this great and good work in in each one of us, and God will keep at it and keep us moving forward so that we're able to flourish in our faith and live life well. And I suspect this is going to look different for every one of us because we're all unique human beings created in the image of God, and God is doing within us what is unique to the life that God has created for us. Now, this is important to know because This is where the trap is. Nothing undermines the spiritual journey quicker than comparison. Our society and our culture, it's it's a wash in comparison, either consciously or unconsciously. We, We compare jobs. We compare homes. We compare marriages. We compare kids. We compare salaries. We compare how many friends we have on Facebook or how many likes we got on the last post. We compare churches. And we often compare our spiritual counters, and our spiritual journeys. And ultimately, it's this. Comparison will blind us to the good work God is doing in our life because we're so consumed with comparing our life with everyone else's. What I've come to discover, or at least hopefully live into, is this life is not a competition. 
And the spiritual journey is not an exercise in comparison. Rather, it is this journey of communion in which we commune and live in community with God as God engages in the good work for our lives, both for the benefit of our lives and we're being led to live as well as the benefit of the world around us. And this is also what I know. God is at work in you where you need it most and where the world needs you most. God is at work in you where you need it most and where the world needs you most. The good work God is doing in you is in the places you and I need it the most so you and I can be what the world most needs. In the places we need it the most are these places that sabotage our lives, keep us stuck, places of woundedness, places of hurt, places of disappointment, places that need healing, places that we're often unaware but God reveals to us and sometimes it's in those places that we're stuck. One author, Wilkie A.U., describes this stuckness in life this way, quote, it's living a dreary life of compromise and resignation. Here's some examples that he gives. We're stuck when we let past failures and poor decisions and missed opportunities make us unforgiving of ourselves and cynical about life. We're stuck when we hang on to resentments toward those who have wronged us and we let those resentments chain us to frustrating relationships. We're stuck when fear of failure prevents us from trying new things. We're stuck when anger about past disappointments and losses shut us off from reconciliation with God, the God who wants to be close to us. And it's often in those stuck places and many other places in our life that the God and the good work of God meets us at our greatest point of need so we can be transformed in order to help meet the world's greatest need. And it's from this good work that God is doing in our life that we can then offer what I like to call acts of creative goodness. And to offer acts of creative goodness is simply to partner with God in the good work that God is doing in our world. And these acts of creative goodness can be as simple as loving others and seeking their best. It can be offering forgiveness and reconciliation. It can be offering your time and presence and solidarity with those who are hurting, marginalized, oppressed, or despairing. It's everything. It's everything from sending cards to writing letters to serving lunch in homeless shelters to visiting the lonely to loving your family to caring for the environment to advocating for justice and life-giving legislation, to having a lunch with someone who's discouraged, to listening to people without judgment, to offering civility and understanding. And we are always in need of the good work God seeks to do in our life. And this world is always in need of our acts of creative goodness that flow from the good work of God in our life. I've come to discover that this inflow of God's good work in our life and the outflow of God's good work through our acts of creative goodness, creates within us that experience of what I simply call being fully alive. But this doesn't just happen. It literally takes courage. It takes courage and an openness to God's Spirit. It takes courage to open up our souls to the Spirit of God so that God's work can begin. It takes courage to move beyond the sidelines and step into the game to offer our acts of creative goodness and risk being misunderstood as well as sacrifice some of our time and energy. It takes courage to be able to open my life up in such a way that says to me and maybe to anyone else that may need to know, I am stuck. We are stuck. And we need God's good work in our life. It's the kind of courage our souls need, and it's the kind of courage our world needs. And our world needs this kind of courage because our world can feel, yep, so discouraging at this point in time. 
and it's powerful what one individual, two individuals, three, maybe more, who simply allow the good work of God in their life to change them so we can do the good work of God wherever we find ourselves. You know, our world can seem so imprisoned in its own futility, despair, and cynicism. But this is where I circle back to the beginning. Because as we know, even Paul's imprisonment could not keep him from gratitude and experiencing God's good work. So this is my encouragement. May we never feel so imprisoned by our own circumstances. May we never feel so imprisoned by our own stuckness. May we never feel so imprisoned by our, our own world that we can't receive the good work God has for our lives and live it in gratitude and offer acts of creative goodness. Amen and amen.